and welcome to new books in south asian studies hosted by dhara anjarya out of bombay india if you look at our past podcast you see we've been focusing strongly on the 19th century european presence in asia we are sticking with the 19th century today but not with the europeans our guest today is susan harris Professor of American Literature and Culture at the University of Kansas and she is going to talk to us about her book Gods Are Bitters Americans and the Philippines 1898-1902 This was the war that sparked Mark Twain's conflict with America apparently He left Vancouver in the 1890s self-confessedly a red-hot imperialist. Yet upon disembarking at New York in 1900, he announced to a waiting throng of reporters that he was against having the eagle put its talons on any other land. I am an anti-imperialist, he said. So let's go over to Susan and find out why. Good morning, Susan. Good morning, Daria. Um, well, thank you for doing this for the New Books Network. It's a great pleasure to have you on board. And uh, your book was fascinating and, you know, it's uh, very different to what we usually do. I mean, since we're doing this book from South Asia. So, before we start off, could you tell us something about yourself and your research and your academic career to date? Sure. Um, happily, too. Um, I'm an Americanist. And I guess that is a little bit unusual for the South Asia portion of the book, of the book network. Um, but my field is 19th century American literature. I'm not a historian. And as a literature person, I have two subspecialties. I, I work with American women writers, and I'm also a Mark Twain specialist. And prior to writing this book, God's Arbiters, um, I had published two books on Twain and two books on American women writers. Um, and I've also edited books by Twain, by Harriet Beecher Stowe, by Kate Douglas Wiggin, um, and a lot of other minor things. Um, I've taught in three institutions. My first job was the Queen's College of the City University of New York. Uh, my second was at Pennsylvania State University, and now I'm at University of Kansas in Lawrence, Kansas. Um, and I teach the run of 19th century and some 20th century American literature courses. Um, and in the last couple of years, I've been very engaged with developing three new courses. One is a Twain course that positions him as very much a citizen of the world, instead of a comic writer or social critic. I mean, he's all of those, but this is more focused on him in his consciousness of world events. Um, I've developed a course on United States immigrant writing, and last semester I taught a very new course on biraciality in American literature. So that's basically my professional profile. Um, it's a fascinating profile, but it's more into literature, you know. So how come the switch to, well, a history book? Um, it's an interesting story. This book, I had no idea I would ever write a book about the Philippines. Um, I, it really came out of a teaching moment, which is not common for me. I was teaching Mark Twain's essay to the person sitting in darkness, which is a very angry essay about the Philippine-American War. And I was teaching it during the semester when the United States invaded Iraq. And I was very angry. And I felt like my anger was being met by Twain's anger. And for the first time, even though I had taught that essay before, I suddenly wanted to investigate what made Mark Twain so angry. And why was my anger? Clearly there was some commonality in there. So I began to investigate. Um, and, and really for the first four years of writing this book was all teaching myself 
a portion of American history that I didn't know, and not only didn't know, I hadn't known that I didn't know. In other words, I had, I knew that we had a, what was called the Spanish-American War, but I didn't know that we had had a war with the Philippines. And so it was all discovery for me. Um, and the further I went into it, the more fascinated I got. Uh, so how come the Philippines, I mean, obviously, Twain, he was very well-traveled, and I mean, the U.S. had a lot of other imperial interests, so why the Philippines specifically? Well, the Philippines, because... I'm not sure how, how many of your listeners know this history, because an awful lot of Americans don't know, which is we tend to get taught usually kind of late in a hot spring semester about the Spanish-American War, maybe for one day. But most people don't know that at the conclusion of the Spanish-American War, um, in addition to annexing Puerto Rico, um, we also annexed Guam and the Philippines, and that the Filipinos vigorously resisted it. We had told them that we were helping them fight against Spain and that they would be free, which was what they wanted, at the end of this. And instead, we made a deal with Spain, paid Spain $20 million, and took over the Philippines, and the Filipinos were outraged. Uh, so the U.S., as we tend to do, promptly labeled what had been freedom fighters and revolutionaries a few weeks earlier, we labeled them insurgents and went to war against them. And it was a war that lasted three years, a fairly bitter war with a lot of very bad behavior on both sides, but the Americans in particular. Um, and, and Mark Twain was very much opposed to this war. He had, by this time, become very much a world citizen, he had traveled around the world. In the beginning, he very much supported the Spanish-American War, which was all about Cuba. But when he realized what the U.S. had done once they finished the Cuban part of the war, and they could not annex Cuba because an amendment called the Teller Amendment had been passed, saying, if you happen to go to war with Spain, you cannot annex Cuba, but the Teller Amendment said nothing about any other former Spanish colony. And so we annexed the Philippines, and Twain basically said, you know, we're suddenly colonizers. We have betrayed our own principles, and this is the wrong thing to do. Um, and, and so he, he fought back. He became one of the most prominent anti-imperialists. And so for me, it was a question of being drawn to the situation and the entire debate that was nationwide and in many ways worldwide about was it the right thing for the Americans to end up with Um So could you just tell us something about your book in a nutshell before we go back to train? Sure. Um, well, um, what, what I do, uh, the book in a nutshell, examine the religious factor in the debates over the Philippines. I became extremely interested, and partly this is looking through the lens of my own time in the United States, but very interested in the, the religious language, the language basically of Protestant evangelicalism that infuses the debates. And I, part of what the book does is to investigate a narrative of American identity that was created basically in textbooks written for children over the course of the 19th century. And so it is, in many ways, a rhetorical book. Um, it, it, it's an odd book for me to have written because, um, on the one hand, I've always been very interested in theories of American identity, and also in American and religion. Um, but I've never written about war before. And as I said, I didn't even know we had a war with the Philippines. So for me, it was an entirely new venture. Um, so first, I had to find out what the war was about um, and get a sense of the historiography. Um, and, and I realized in the process that, especially as I was reading the historiography, Americans get interested in the Philippine-American War every time 
they get embroiled in yet another small war around the world. Otherwise, this tends to be forgotten. So there was a whole spate of books that were written about the Philippine-American War during the Vietnam War. And right now, because of the Iraq War and then the Afghanistan War, suddenly there's a whole new book, set of books. So I'm one of a number of people who are producing books about this. Um, so what I did, tried to do was to put together this narrative of American identity and figure out how all the many parts and how they fit together. Um, and and to, that involved thinking really, really hard about Americans and race, especially. So there's a number of factors. There's Americans and their sense of themselves as divinely ordained to spread Western civilization, particularly American civilization, around the globe. There's also Americans, this is white American sense, that only white Americans are really capable of enacting American civilization. So you've got a contradiction right there, which rather than trying to resolve, most people just kind of held them in tandem. And so it fascinated me as I was reading the congressional records and other kinds of speeches, how people would dance around the implicit contradiction in this. And in terms of, I'm going to talk about sort of how the book evolved for this. Um, I had to give myself a long education in the primary documents of the period. Um, so, like, I spent an entire winter curled up on the couch with an online version of the congressional record. And the congressional record is everything anybody ever said in Congress from the, the end of the revolutionary period to yesterday. Um, and so it's all online. It's online. If I, otherwise, it would have been almost impossible to get hold of it because it's so long. There's so many volumes that I would have had to spend a year or more in Washington, D.C. or someplace like that. But it turns out one of my librarians found it online. So I could, I could actually search it a bit, although the search engine isn't terribly good with it. But I, I, I just read through it for, for months, really. Um, I also have to learn Spanish to translate some of the documents, especially some of the documents from the Philippines. Um, I read newspapers from other countries, from England in particular, but from France and from Spain. I spent a summer in Spain doing a Spanish course, and when I wasn't in class, I went to specialized libraries and said, what you got on the Philippines? And, and read things and took notes even when my Spanish wasn't good enough to translate then, and I translated later, right? Um, and I also wanted to see what other people were talking about when they watched the Americans in the Philippines. So when I was in England at a conference, I went to the British Library and I read newspapers and magazines from the period. Uh, what are the, what are the Brits saying about the U.S. and the Philippines? Um, and, and then I also wanted on the American side to figure out why did Americans think they had this mission? And so I ended up trying to unpack all the rhetoric by reading American school books, the textbooks that trained children and told them who they were and what they should do and how they should do it and, and what it meant to be an American. The problem, of course, was putting all this material together. Um, and I think, I think this was in many ways the hardest book to find a form for, um, of all the books I've written. I was trying to write chronologically and it was not working. And I was also at that point trying to keep Mark Twain out of the book because I had the sense that as soon, he's such an attractive figure that as soon as he walks through the door, he just takes over the room. And I didn't want it to be a book, especially about Mark Twain. But I was telling, I had a small work group the year I was on sabbatical, and a couple other women who were on sabbatical, and we were, worked together. 
and I was explaining all this to my work group, and one of the women said, uh, oh, I'd love to have Twain in there. I'd buy that book if it had Twain. And I, I suddenly realized my, my strategy was wrong, um, and that Mark Twain is the selling point, that people will pick up a book about Mark Twain, even if they don't know or care anything about the particular topic he's talking about. So I let Mark Twain in through the door, and he actually became the interface between the events I was talking about and my audience. Um, and, and also, his presence there helped me put together all the issues that I was struggling with. Because in one way or another, Twain commented on almost everything that I wanted to talk about. And in the course of this, I, I grew to respect him enormously. I mean, I've been a Twain scholar for years, but I've not dealt with him in this realm of social criticism, global awareness, um, undermine, I, I mean, uh, under, under which is a, a very strong moral imperative, right? So he, he is really a very informed social critic. And I became very, to respect him enormously. And he also holds the book together because in many ways he also embodies all the contradictions that I was talking about. And he often addresses in his writing. So once I let Twain in, I realized I actually had a cast of characters. Uh, so it was Twain on the one hand, two very prominent senators from the period, Benjamin Tillman and Albert Beveridge, and then all these topics that they were all debating. And so I put the political speakers in the center of the book and surrounded them by other voices, like people who wrote letters to the editor or, or parodies of important poems, and, and had them all addressing the various topics. Right. And Twain himself kind of walks around the edges, making comments. And most of the chapters actually begin and end with something that Twain said. So, methodologically, this book is kind of a crossover between history and rhetorical studies, I think, with a sprinkling of literary analysis. So it's not necessarily a book that literary types would gravitate to. There's not a lot of close reading. What I do is to deal with historical materials, but I read them from a rhetorical viewpoint. And, and one of the things that I tend to do in a lot of what I write, I'm very interested in, I call them associative screens. How one word or a phrase will prompt another in an individual's or even a group's in collective consciousness. So, for instance, I have a chapter on the influence of Rudyard Kipling's poem, The White Man's Burden, on the U.S. Congress. And I try to see how often lines or words used in the poem trigger other words from the poem in congressional speeches. So, one of the most quoted lines in the poem characterizes the Filipinos, and now I'm quoting Kipling, their new-caught, sullen people, half-devil and half-child. And you see these words all over the debate in Congress, even when the speaker isn't actually referring to the poem. Now, a lot of them did. I mean, Benjamin Tillman brought the poem in, read it out loud to Congress, said, you know, I want this entered into the congressional record. You know, this is a very important poem to us. <laughs> so, but others just use sort of signal phrases from the poem. <coughs> right. And so one senator, and this one was actually arguing against U.S. engagement in the Philippines, but he accused the U.S. of turning the Filipinos into, quote, solid and irreconcilable enemies. And then, very shortly afterwards, he says, these people are given to us as children to lead them out of childhood into manhood. And, and you can see that Kipling's poem, the language of the poem, lies in back 
of this senator's argument. Um, solemn is not a word that you you would think that most politicians would use to characterize another people. But Kipling gave them the vocabulary, and so they they started to use it. And I'm very interested in this kind of association. It really fascinates me. Another big one that I treat in the book is the association of American liberties, very much a constitutional issue, a secular issue. But it was often associated with Protestant ideology. And I think there are some very clear patterns here that hold across interest groups. You don't have to necessarily be, say, a Protestant evangelical to use the language and make those associations. So there tends to be a penchant for casting contemporary events in kind of teleological terms. So people will fuse providential and national history. And this, again, happens over and over again. And the fusion shows up in the language that the vocabulary that the speakers used. And it seemed to me, as I was reading, that in many ways it was impossible then, and I kind of wonder about it now, to talk about the United States without resorting to Protestant evangelical language. So this is one of the things that absolutely grabbed me in, in doing this research. What I concluded was that narratives of American history and identity are actually a series of associative loops. And and everybody participates in it. Um, it doesn't matter where you're coming from. They work across ideological lines. And so even racial hierarchies get linked to religious affiliations. And these are linked to patterns of values and behaviors that give evidence of the values. And, and what I mean by that is that in this narrative, especially as you see it developing in school books, you have children being taught that prerequisites for responsible citizenship are honesty, self-control, often cleanliness, um, a sense of doing for others. These are behaviors. They show the values that characterize the good American citizen. Now, who can participate in this? Who can be self-controlled? Who can be honest? Well, it turns out, as you read the book, that the people most capable of doing this are white Protestants. Uh, other people can kind of learn to do it, but it doesn't come very naturally to them. So race and religion tie in with the whole idea of who's qualified to be an American citizen. And, and so the loop here is a national narrative that links Christianity, whiteness, liberty, and often capitalism, and labels the whole bundle civilization. Um, so, so we have something that is, on the one hand, behaviorist, on the other hand, essentialist. Behaviorist in that you should be able to learn self-control. You know, we try to teach our children to control themselves. We try to teach them to be honest. There's nothing wrong with these behaviors or the values that are behind them. The question comes when we say, well, who can do it? And the essentialism enters in in that we say, well, those people, and those people are usually people of color, are not really capable of doing it. And at that point, the language resorts to some kind of racial analysis of why X group is not capable of learning these things. So, kind of the core of the book is unpacking that narrative, seeing where it came from, seeing how it's deployed in the debate, and then later in some of Americans, the Americans' policy in the political, and then seeing how other people around the world actually responded to it. 
It's not the deep south, but it was a slave-holding state. His family held a couple of slaves. He had an uncle with a large farm with about a hundred slaves. And nobody in his youth suggested that there was anything wrong with slavery. By the end of his life, as you have just said, he was adamantly against um, annexing other people. He uh, supported a black man through... Yale Law School. Uh, he apologized for slavery. He was intensely aware of racism as we would define it today. How did he get there? What happened in his life? I think this is a case, I, I'm writing a paper right now, which I'm titling um, An Argument for Study Abroad, because I think all of his traveling was what educated him out of what he had learned as a child, and into a completely different assessment of what human groups were like and the relativity of various cultures. Uh, I think it started the minute he left home when he was 18 or 19 years old. And many of his letters to his mother when he first left home and then even some of his early writings, including, I would think, The Innocence Abroad, have an energy that I think comes from the struggle to understand other cultures and how they do And there's a tension there because he begins, he is totally accepting of his culture and its superiority. He just assumes it. And he has to experience over and over again what what is wrong with his idea. I think the real turning point comes in the middle of the 1890s when he does a tour around the world, and around the world meant the British Empire. So he visits, he sets off from Vancouver, he visits Australia, uh, New Zealand, South Africa, Milan, India. And in every step, as he looks at indigenous cultures, and also at the British conduct of colonialism in those particular cultures, you can see him becoming more and more a relativist. So, for instance, in Australia, where he never sees an aboriginal, he is told that they've been wiped out. But he does see artifacts. He's very interested in things like boomerang. And he says, this has got to be a fairly sophisticated culture, that technologically they can produce things like this. When he goes to Tasmania, and he learns about genocide, and he realizes as he listens to the stories of the Tasmanian rebels, who were hunted down by the whites and basically killed off, he, he, he frames them as patriots and heroes, rather than as savages. Mind you, he never really has that sense about American Indians. That's the place where we don't have a sense of him rethinking very much, and, and there's a lot of scholars who are struggling with it. For me, I think the, the real moment for Twain is his visit to India during that lecture tour. Because there is no way that you can go to India and not call it an advanced civilization. And he is blown away by India, and he doesn't know how to deal with it. It is incredibly alien. It is absolutely fascinating. It is deeply historical. It is deeply cultural. And it's very different. But I think that is, in many ways, a turning point for him. And, and it's after he comes back from that that 
he returns to the United States, by then we have annexed the Philippines, or are about to, and he says, I am an anti-imperialist, I will not have the United States put its talent, the American eagle put its talent on any other land. But it's a long journey. I mean, by then he's a man in his mid-60s. And this is fascinating because, you know, obviously I'm a historian of the British Empire and you have a lot of like, you know, like, well, British travelers, British colonials, you know, contemporaneous between, and like they go traveling, you know, and maybe like they're just like, they're young people or maybe they've just been working in England or whatever, they haven't really thought too much about things, you know, they've got a lot of unsound notions. And then they go to India, then they go to the colonies and they decide that the British Empire is the best thing in the world. So, I mean, they see the same thing and they come to very different conclusions. Well, I think, I think that's a dilemma for Twain, too. And it's also a dilemma to move back to the Philippines for people trying to look at the Philippines and say, well, what should we have done? What, what is the issue here? Because, as I said before, with this whole thing about self-control, honesty, cleanliness, etc., there's nothing wrong with those values. They're actually good values, right? They really... I mean, we can argue that they are values that promote a capitalist culture, uh, and they are. But, but it's also you know, it's good to have tell your five-year-old to control himself. You know, he needs to be able to do that in life. Um, the whole idea of bringing Western civilization to other cultures is really very problematic, and I think Twain certainly struggles with it. For one thing, all of his informants are British. Because he doesn't read Hindi, he doesn't read Urdu, you know, he, he has to work through the British. Uh, he doesn't speak anything either. So, he, he can only get his information from British records. But he's a very good reader, and he's a very good researcher. And, and I think he comes away very ambivalent. He, on the one hand, suddenly gains tremendous respect for the indigenous peoples of these various countries. On the other hand, he recognizes that to survive under conditions of modernity, you have to adapt Western ideas and start. So I would say he's not opposed to the British Empire. They treated him very well in mean, this whole tour as an empire sponsor. But <coughs> But he is also very cautious about what the effects of imperialist regimes do to a country's own integrity. And I think that's where he's reading the Philippines. He doesn't want the Philippines to become the United States Tasmania, where they have to kill everybody off. And he really feels very strongly, as many other anti-imperialists did, that the United States, given its own history, its own history of struggle to free itself from England, should not be imposing itself on people who have said very clearly, we don't want this. So I think that it, it's, not a, it's not a clean verdict for him, but it's a rethinking. And, and way in advance of a lot of people at that time. Um, you devoted a lot of space to, you know, Twain's relationship with Rudyard Kipling and actually Kipling's influence on, well, the American political outlook to elaborate some more on that. I'm sorry, I didn't understand that last. Yeah. Uh, you devoted a lot of space to, you know, Twain's relationship with Rudyard Kipling. And also, like, you know, to Kipling's influence on, well, American political thought. So, could you just elaborate some more? Sure. Um, the interesting thing is that though Twain was very much a friend of Kipling's and in private ex expressed a few reservations about Kipling's uh, adulation of kingship and imperialism, Twain was one of the few people never to comment publicly on Kipling's The White Man's Burden. I, I was, this poem fascinates me because I had known it all my life, but didn't know really what it was about. And then 
when I was in the BA, the British Library, and looking at newspapers uh, from 1899, just saying, you know, what, what did the Brits say about the Americans? Suddenly the poems, and it was published two days before the U.S. Senate was supposed to vote on the treaty that would annex the Philippines. And it, I suddenly realized it was an intervention into the debate, that that's what it was all about. When he says, take up the white man's burden, he's talking to the United States, saying, come on, join the gang. I was reading all the newspaper reports of Brown's the poem, and I suddenly realized that the poem crystallized a pro-imperialist British sentiment rather than creating it, that the sentiment was there. And what the poem did was take the energies of the sentiment and put it into very consumable rhyme. And that's why it was a very well-known poem, because it's very easy. It's kind of murky as to you know, what exactly side are you on, but it's very, it's a very very easy poem to memorize that rhythm, you know, that easy word. Um, and so, here you have a number of British newspapers and magazines saying, we think the Americans should live up to their responsibilities and annex the Philippines and get on with the business of empire. And then you have the poem that appears. And what's fascinating on the British is that the British imperialists instantly recycled the poem. I mean, by the next day, there were lines from the poem that were in British editorials. It reaches the United States about 24 hours later, and suddenly senators and congressmen are quoting it. It may have helped with the Senate vote. Um, a little bit more help came from there was an outbreak of fighting between Filipino soldiers and American soldiers in Manila. But the confluence there, I think there's there's room there for somebody to write a whole book about the influence of poetry on foreign policy or on politics generally in the American Senate because there's a lot of poetry there. But the Americans picked up the poem right away and it became almost a household word or rhythm um, and you see people quoting it, people parodying it. It is something that circulates like crazy around the United States. Little local newspapers out in the Midwest, you have somebody coming in with wonderful parody of the poem. And it so it, it crystallizes pro-imperialist British sentiment, and I specify pro-imperialist has not all uh, Britons are asking the U.S. to, to come totally against it. Um, so it, it crystallizes the pro-imperial British, British conversation, but it also enters into the American conversation. And an interesting thing there is that in the American conversation, it ceases to be secular. And become, it enters into that conversation which says we have a special mission. It is a God-given mission. And so suddenly it becomes an adjunct to that. The whole idea of bringing the benevolence of Western civilization, which is Protestant civilization, to the Philippines. And, and, and it's edgy there because well, we're bringing Christian civilization, and the proper response there is the Philippines have been Catholic for three centuries. They were proselytized by the Spanish. Um, and you realize that what the Americans were really talking about was not Christian, but Protestant. The Christian meant Protestant. So, we, where our current religious debates in the United States, I think, have an origin in this moment, where there's a kind of clear division between various kinds of Christians and who gets to have the mantle of that name. Um, so, I'm hoping that 
the British, you know, then they see the American annexation of the Philippines as a threat to their own imperial superiority or something? You would think they would. Instead, I think the British, like other European countries, especially the imperialist ones, they'd all been kind of eyeing the U.S. You know, as, as the United States got more powerful, richer, and energetic, I think everybody was kind of saying, okay, you know, what, what's the next move for them? What are they going to do? The, the British should have been threatened by the Americans suddenly deciding that they were going to become a colonial power. But basically what the language does in the British is to say, okay, join with us. You are, you are new at this game. We are an old hand at it. Look what we did in Egypt. Look what we've done in India. We can teach you how to be productive in Korea. And we can teach you our model of benevolence in Korea. That we are there to help the people rather than simply exploit them like this Spanish did. I mean, this is the sort of official British line. So what they managed to do was to create what turns into the Anglo-American alliance. And this is a moment when that 100-year history of edginess, tension between England and the United States that stem from first the Revolutionary War and then the War of 1812 suddenly gets resolved. And part of the way they resolved it is to say, not only are you our brother imperialist, but you are also our brother Anglo-Saxon. So the, the racial issue plays in as well. We are all Protestant nations. We are all white Anglo-Saxon nations. Why shouldn't we join forces? And then we will be the most powerful imperialists. You know, the Spanish are basically dead as imperialists by now. There is Russia. There is Germany. There is France. There are other countries that are certainly in there playing the game very, very hard. But a British-American alliance makes for a lot of power. So basically, the British invited the Americans to come. It's kind of interesting. Probably the Americans could offset the threat from, I don't know, the, the European powers. But uh, getting back to Spain, uh, you said you were doing some research on him and how his views evolved, I mean, in terms of well, his outlook um, in, in America's imperial mission. In terms of his outlook. Yeah, I mean, we were discussing uh, about how your current research looks at, you know, Twain's um, well evolving outlook on the American imperial mission. I think what I'm interested in doing right now is just at the moment, and I, I don't even know how big this project's going to be. I, I, I'm interested in, in tracing Twain's trajectory on race and, and civilization. Um, I've actually been working with some online programs. I've been feeding texts into them and seeing... Uh, I'm just testing three words, uh, savage civilization and, and the word nigger, to see when he uses them, how often he uses them, in what context he uses them. From his early letters after... He left his mother in Hannibal on up to, you know, the late Twain shortly before he died. And, and I've only been doing this for a couple of weeks. I don't have anything conclusive. But it's really very interesting to watch how the words, they shift the context in which the words are used. How he defines savage. How by, <coughs> by the time he is, in Australia, he's suddenly dividing savage into semi-savaged, and still some savage, but mostly civilized. And, and then the word civilization starts to break down, and, and it, it's no longer this monolithic thing. He, he begins to see the differences among civilizations. And, and, you know, he's trying to make sense of all of this. I said before that India is really the turning point for him, because there he has certainly a great civilization, but it's one he doesn't understand at all. So what makes it tick is the big issue for him. 
So that's what I'm, I'm doing with Tween at the moment. Um, I'm also very interested, having done this book that talks about the American narrative and how Americans identify themselves and how that plays out when Americans are thinking about going into other countries, annexing other countries, and also in debates over immigration. I would love to do a large collaborative project with people all over the world trying to figure out various national narratives and then how they're deployed in the debates over, over immigration in those countries because we have an incredible number of immigrant flows all over the world right now. Seems like almost every country is either giving up large numbers of its population as immigrants or they are receiving large numbers of other people's population. So we, and, and everybody's having a problem with it. So how, how do people define themselves and how does their definition of themselves work as they are trying to figure out what to do with their immigrants. And, and it seems to me like if we could get a lot of these narratives and a lot of these strategies, we might be able on a global level to begin to talk in some coherent way about global immigration rather than only being able to tackle it one country at a time. So that's another kind of spin-off from this God's Arbiters, the, old, the older project now, to into newer projects. Um, that is fascinating, and um, it's uh, been great doing this uh, with you for the New Books Network. But uh, one final question before we let you go. I mean, you trace links in your closing chapter between the Americans in the Philippines and the current situation in Afghanistan, in Iraq. Um, I mean, what do you think? Are there any parallels or something? What do I think what? Yeah, what do you think? I mean, do you think there are any parallels between the American situation in the Philippines and maybe particularly in Afghanistan? I mean, where like, I mean, the idea was to go in as a sort of reforming power, you know, liberate the people from the Taliban and all that. It's the same story. I mean, that's what amazes me. Uh, that's where, uh, you know, the, the book brought me right back to where I was in the beginning when we invaded Iraq and I found myself incredibly angry and and I found Twain incredibly angry and I thought, you know, what, why are we both so angry? Um, and, and it amazes me that we can maintain this same reverence over now more than a hundred years with many involvements around the world. Um, and that people buy into it. I, I, I was fascinated that people bought into it in 1898-99. I'm fascinated that people buy into it, and not just Americans, that they buy into it right now. And so I think we have the same problem that we have, that we still feel, and the we here is Americans, we still feel in our hearts that we have something to teach, something to bring other people. And certainly there are a lot of people who want to come here from whatever their cultures are. Every time I come back to the United States from a trip abroad, I'm amazed at how many people are trying to get in, you know, people from all over the world. So that's just an catch. I mean, a lot of, I mean, a lot of immigration is, it's like this for the cash, you know, it's not necessarily that they subscribe to American or British values or whatever, I think. I mean, very often I think, there's no interest in adopting the host country's values. It's more like we are going to get benefit or something. I mean, yeah, they, that happens. Yeah, they, they're going where they can do better and have more money and make a more comfortable yeah. life for themselves. But as anybody finds out when they actually immigrate from one country to another, it's just not that easy, right? No. Your children grow up, they speak, probably don't speak your language as well, they start to they speak the language of the, the new country, they grow away from you, you're very unhappy, you might be isolated because you don't learn the language. So it, it's a very complicated situation and uh, over several generations. And you see family destruction and all kinds of, of tensions. I mean, this is certainly, when I teach immigrant literature, this is the theme over and over and over again. 
and it's certainly the theme of immigrant literature that I've read from other countries as well, that you can't just do it to live better in your own way, that the country is going to make some demands on you. And the question is, what are the limits of those demands? In other words, how, how can we do this? And one of the things that is fascinating about today is in Twain's time, um, and in the time of the first huge immigrant flows, which is the 1890s, when you came over, you might go back, a lot of people did, but you're basically cut off from home. It takes three months to get a letter back and forth. Today, you're calling mom a couple times a day. You know, you may have a house in Bombay and a house in Houston. You are on Skype, as we are. You know, you are, you are in touch all the time. And so that in itself creates a whole other complexity to the network of, of population flows and communication flows and cultural royalty that I don't think we've even begun to understand. So it's not just a question of going to better yourself economically. It's, uh, I mean, people may, may think it's that, but I think they very quickly learn that there are, you can't simply plunk yourself, you can't, you can't be a tourist long term. You have to make some time. Can you hear me? Oh, yes. Okay, because I just got a notice that said, my microphone wasn't working. So I think it's, I think, in other words, it, 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 there's a whole new level of complexity that have to do with allegiances, but also technology plays in, in a way it's never played in before. And we don't really understand it. Yeah, um, thanks very much. I mean, obviously, imperialism and immigration, obviously, they go together. And uh, well, we won't take up any more of your time, but thank you once again for doing this for the New Books Network, and uh, goodbye. Goodbye, and thank you very much, and I hope you have a good day. So, Fox, a lovely podcast about non-European imperialism in Asia. Kipling would have enjoyed it, and I hope you did too. Goodbye.